Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Just Security Podcast. I'm your host, Parash Shah. Co-hosting this episode with me is Just Security's Washington senior editor, Viola Ganger. Vladimir Karamurza is one of Russia's most famous political prisoners. He's a longtime opposition leader and prominent columnist for the Washington Post, who was poisoned twice in incidents that are widely attributed to the Kremlin. And yet, like another famous opposition leader currently imprisoned in Russia, Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Karamurza was determined to return to his homeland and to continue his human rights work after recovering from attempts on his life. In April 2022, Russian authorities arrested him and charged him with high treason. He was eventually sentenced to 25 years in prison. In late January, Vladimir's wife Yevgenia reported that he had been moved from his prison and that his whereabouts were unknown. Though he has now resurfaced at a new prison in Siberia, Vladimir is being held in the strictest form of isolation, and his situation remains dire. In Russia and other repressive countries, the situation is also dire for the lawyers trying to defend those political prisoners. The lawyers often face threats to their lives or threats of prosecution themselves simply for doing their jobs. Joining the show to discuss Vladimir Karamurza's case and the broader risks facing political prisoners and lawyers in Russia are Vladimir's wife, Yevgenia Karamurza, and his lawyer for more than 10 years, Vadim Prokhorov. Yevgenia is advocacy director of the Free Russia Foundation and has tirelessly advocated for the rights of her husband and other political prisoners in Russia. And Vadim has represented a range of Kremlin critics who've been targeted by the regime, including opposition politicians and anti-corruption campaigners. He was forced to flee Russia last April, just days before Vladimir's sentence was handed down, because the prosecutor and the judge in the case threatened to prosecute him, too. Yevgenia, Vadim, we're relieved to hear that Vladimir has been located. Can you update us on what is known about his current situation? Yevgenia, let's start with you. Well, Vladimir disappeared for, uh, thankfully, just 24 hours because he was moved without any indications of that being prepared. Uh, he was moved from one prison colony uh, to yet another one within the Omsk region. He was moved from the strict regime prison colony to a so-called special regime prison colony, which is the harshest grade in the Russian penitentiary system. He is, of course, in solitary confinement there, as he's been since September 2023, when he was first transferred from Moscow to Omsk to serve his 25-year prison sentence for so-called high treason. Um, Thankfully, Vladimir was able to send a note through the prison correspondence system to his lawyer, letting her know that uh, he'd been transferred and uh, uh, letting her know that he was doing okay. Um, So the lawyer went to visit him. So now we have established contact, and uh, I don't know if the so-called special regime will somehow affect the visitation rights of his lawyer or the correspondence rights. Uh, We haven't yet understood that because uh, this is uh, something new to us, and I hope that we will have more information in the coming weeks. As a Moscow lawyer, I worked with uh, 
a number of, of the Russian political prisoners. For example, for many years I worked with Boris Nemtsov, who has been assassinated just near the Kremlin uh, nine years ago. And as a friend and as a lawyer, I worked with uh, Vladimir Karamurza for many years. For all of the political prisoners, uh, for Ilya Yash and also my friend and my client, and for uh, Alexei Gorinov, uh, Alexei Navalny, and other Russian prominent political prisoners, is very important to have friendly lawyers such kind of lawyers who are in, in a strong connection with them, who uh, think the same way, uh, who could support them, because uh, when the uh, political prisoners is pushed down to the jail, to the prison, to the strict regime colony in Siberia, for example, as Vladimir Karamurza, uh, it's very important for him to have connection with the uh, friends, with the lawyers, and to have any real connections with outside country and outside world. And uh, moreover, I think that it's a subject of life and death for them, because the connections with the political prisoners and Putin's Russia means uh, their safety and security. So I think that this criminal case against uh, Vladimir Karamurza and other political prisoners has nothing to do with law at all. But to keep connections with him, to be in touch with him, for the lawyers, for the relatives, is a subject of um, life and death, and uh, it's very, very important uh, for all of us. Vadim, these are difficult circumstances and difficult cases, but what else can be done to support human rights lawyers in Russia? It's a very difficult question because uh, there is a quite difficult and dangerous situation about human rights lawyers in Russia. Last October, in October of 23, practically most of the members of uh, Alexei Navalny's lawyers team have been arrested in Russia, in Moscow. Three my brave colleagues, Alexei Lipser, Vadim Kobzev, and Igor Sergunin, have been arrested in Moscow on the uh, absolutely false uh, grounds that they allegedly took part in the extremist activity of their client. Alexei Navalny, uh, he is a politician, and his accusation in extremism has nothing to do with law. His lawyers are not extremists. They are just professionals who tried to help him just by the legal tools, only legal tools. And it was the real reason for the Putin's regime attacks on the lawyers of Navalny's team. And I think that one of the most important consequences of this attack uh, was to try to explain to the other lawyers to make them fear, to try to make them scared, uh, and to try to suppress them with the aim uh, they will refuse to make any legal assistance to the Russian political prisoners. I'm absolutely sure that these attempts, they will fail, but at the same time, I can only claim that those, my colleagues who are still in Russia, 
they're absolutely heroic persons. They were, they uh, bravely were, uh, made their job. And I hope that in the future Russia, they will be remembered and their uh, brave activity will be some kind of example to the other spheres of the civil society, how it is possible to make their job in the conditions of the uh, totalitarian or authoritarian political regime. Can you tell us a little bit about what impact has Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 had on the situation of political prisoners in Russia? And what do you see as the gravest threats facing those prisoners and their lawyers representing them today? Uh, Well, this is uh, a very good question and a very complex one. Um, As Vladimir has always said, for years I've been listening to my husband um, making those speeches, talking to politicians, and he has always said that in Russia, internal repression always leads to external aggression. Um, The aggression against Ukraine is not the first act of aggression committed by the Putin regime against our close neighbors. There was the invasion of Georgia in 2008. There was the bombing in Syria. There was the annexation of Crimea, of course. So this war, unfortunately, did not come as something unexpected to those of us who understand how the regime of Vladimir Putin works. But in order to be able to continue warmongering, Vladimir Putin has to squash, has to annihilate all dissent within society and uh, create this warped image of reality in which the Russian population in its entirety supports the war and stands behind him. Uh, In order to achieve that, of course, it has to up repression in the country because, of course, there are many people who uh, don't want to do anything with this regime and want Russia to become a democracy in which human rights and freedoms would be respected and in which uh, we would be able to live peacefully, coexist peacefully with our neighbors without invading their territories and killing civilians there. Just uh, during the first year of the full-scale invasion in 2022, about uh, 20,000 people were unlawfully detained across the country, including at least 565 minors. And criminal proceedings were initiated against at least nine of them before they reached the age of 18. For example, against uh, uh, 16-year-old Nikita Uvarov, who was sent to prison for five years for planning to blow up a virtual FSB building in the computer game Minecraft. Repression continues today, and every day we hear about new arrests and new detentions and new sentences. Just a couple of days ago, a 72-year-old woman was uh, sent to prison for five years for making an online post about the war in Ukraine and the atrocities committed by the Russian army there. Um, the number of political prisoners, according to Memorial, Russia's most respected NGO and the co-recipient of the Nobel Prize, approaches 700 people. And Memorial itself says uh, that this number is very conservative and the real number is probably twice or three times as high. The uh, level of repression is becoming truly 
catastrophic and the uh, methods used by the current regime, the current Kremlin regime, completely replicate those used during the Soviet times against Soviet dissidents. And these methods include punitive psychiatry, torture, the use of uh, physical and sexual violence, and absolutely Stalin-era prison terms that amount to 15 or 20 or 25 years, like in my husband's case, against uh, acts of civil disobedience and uh, used against people who stand up to the Kremlin and say no to the war. Uh, That shows that there is, of course, a big part of the Russian society that uh, rejects the policies of Vladimir Putin and uh, uh, not to mention hundreds of thousands of Russian citizens who were forced to leave the country. And I know many of them are my colleagues, uh, for example, from the Free Russia Foundation, a huge civil society organization that just over the two last years has expanded its network tremendously because so many people who were forced to leave the country still want to continue their work connected with independent journalism, with civil society rights, with defending democracy, promoting democracy, with just basically saving people uh, running from uh, uh, Putin in the Kremlin or from uh, from Lukashenko in Belarus or uh, saving and relocating anyone who's running from the regime. So I see, um, and another um, such example is the recent story of Nadezhdin, lines of Russian citizens leaving their signatures for Nadezhdin, the only anti-war candidate in the so-called election that will be held in Russia in March uh, of this year. This uh, collective act is really important because uh, it needs to be emphasized that those people are not Mm -hmm. just signing a paper. They're leaving their full name, they're leaving their address, they're leaving all their personal data on the on those lists. And they do this in a near totalitarian country, in a near totalitarian state, where they know that a person can go to prison for several years for standing in the street with a blank sheet of paper, like it happened so many times before. So I believe that this act shows that there is a lot of dissent in the in society and whenever russian citizens are allowed to show to demonstrate it without um being hauled into police vehicles right away uh they do this so that potential is there and i believe that that part of russian civil society very much needs the support of global democratic community because um, if we want to see Russia a democracy one day it is these people who are going to be building it these people are the faces of that different Russia that democratic Russia that we all want to see thank you very much it's really important Yevgenia I want to just pick up on that point that you mentioned recently for the United States and the European Union sanctions and other tools have become a key part of their foreign policy. How effective do you see those tools and what more can be done to support these types of civil society efforts? Well, I see very warning signs of tiredness around the world um, when it comes to Ukraine and uh, how much more support 
can be given to Ukraine. And uh, there are very worrying signs, uh, for example, in the United States in this regard. And I believe that um, it needs to be reiterated again and again that Ukraine is not just fighting for its land. The Ukraine is not just fighting for its citizens' homes. It's fighting for democracy to be able to prevail against the evil. And uh, Ukraine needs all the support it can get, not just to maintain the status quo, but to actually win the war. The victory of Ukraine is crucial for the downfall of the regime in the Kremlin. And I believe that just like the war in Afghanistan, that war is indeed weakening the regime and the victory of Ukraine would weaken the regime in the Kremlin, in the Kremlin even more. Uh, another um, very important instrument that should be used, uh, continue to be used, is sanctions. Uh, sanctions can be more effective, of course, if loopholes were closed, if uh, the regime in the Kremlin were prevented from avoiding those sanctions, uh, from circumventing those sanctions. So uh, economic sanctions can be more effective. And I think that this is what needs to be done. They not just need to be imposed, but also followed through. Targeted personal sanctions, the so-called Magnitsky sanctions, are just as effective as well, because they send a very clear message that it's not the entire country that has to pay for the crimes committed by a handful of people, but these specific people need to be brought to justice for launching the act of aggression against Ukraine. And those specific people implicated in those gross human rights violations in Russia should be brought to justice. Their assets should be frozen. They should be made unwelcome in democratic countries. So these are uh, personal targeted Magnitsky sanctions uh, should be continued, uh, should be used as well. Uh, another, of course, important uh, thing is uh, support to that part of Russian civil society that understands what's going on and tries to fight the regime with all it has. I'm talking about supporting independent journalism, uh, supporting civil society activists, supporting lawyers, human rights defenders, because these people are fighting the regime against all odds. And they are going to be the ones to rebuild the country from scratch and make it into democracy. And with regard to political prisoners and to hostages uh, whose numbers are growing around the world, there is an initiative that is very close to my heart. And I believe that it should be supported by the global democratic community. And that is the creation of hostage affairs offices or positions of hostage envoys following the example of the United States, where there is such an office and the special presidential envoy for hostages, Ambassador Roger Carstens, was able to free at least 30 people by now. And I believe that this is tremendously important because we're talking about human rights defenders who are defending the principles on which democratic countries are built. And they're defending these principles in those uh, autocratic regimes, in those totalitarian countries where uh, people go to prison and are being killed for defending these principles. And I believe that the response of uh, many governments to the growing crisis of hostage-taking and political imprisonment, uh, the response that they're not going to engage with terrorists. The thing is, whether they engage or not, 
the number of political prisoners is growing and hostages are being taken. And I believe that such approach is uh, unacceptable in the 21st century in a civilized world. And the more consistent, uh, more responsible approach would be for these democracies to pull their efforts together and create a set of mechanisms that would not only allow these countries to save to, to to solve the existing cases of hostages and political prisoners, but to create a set of tools to prevent such practices from being used in the first place. So this is what I'm advocating for uh, wherever I go. And I know that there is interest for this initiative in many parliaments already. And there was a hearing uh, held on this issue at the British Parliament, and uh, now I'm in Berlin, and I've heard a lot of interest from uh, German parliamentarians. Uh, and um, so I, I hope that uh, the same thing, the same uh, hearing can be replicated here in Bundestag. Um, and I hope that other uh, democratic countries will follow suit. Thank you. Just a quick follow-up on sanctions. When you speak to policymakers and to officials in the United States and Europe about increasing the number of sanctions on Russia, what do you hear about why that's not happening? Because the war goes on for two years and the sanctions already imposed were uh, large enough and were not able to crumble Russia's economy, which means that Russia's economy is so stable that nothing can budget, which I think is not true. And I believe that the Russian eco uh, economy is being affected by those sanctions. This is why Russian statistic agencies stop publishing uh, data pertaining to specific areas of economy because they have things to hide. And uh, of course, I'm not an economist and there are brilliant Russian economists who explain how sanctions do work and what else can be done to make them more effective. The, their input is really important in understanding what more can be done in terms of economic sanctions. Uh, when it comes to uh, targeted Magnitsky sanctions, um, they are being imposed, but then there is often no consistency and uh, we see sanctions uh, lifted at the European level example um, sanctions that had been imposed against people who have clear connections to the Kremlin so I think that more consistency is definitely needed and also more political will to name the specific human rights violators, the specific people who prop up Putin's regime and who make it possible for him to continue warmonging. And that fear to name the specific names is still there. It's easier to say that Russia as a country is responsible. It's easier to say that the Russian people in its entirety, the all 140-something million, are responsible. Because when everyone's responsible, no one truly is. And I think that this approach needs to change. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you would like to make a particular point of today? Always remember those people, those brave lawyers who are arrested and to demand their release. Always. You know, I have been doing my best to continue Vladimir's work. 
And Vladimir has for years been speaking on behalf of political prisoners in the Russian Federation, advocating for the release, making sure that the names of these people are known around the world. And I have to do the same thing. And I have to talk about them because they are faces of that Russia that is very close to my heart. And I'm truly proud to have such compatriots as uh, Sasha Skachelenka, an artist and a pacifist in St. Petersburg, who received seven years in prison for switching price tags at a local supermarket with anti-war messages. Uh, or Alexei Gorinov, who spoke about, against uh, the war uh, in Ukraine, saying that it was unethical to hold um, children's uh, drawing contest while uh, kids in Ukraine were dying on a daily basis. He talked about this during a council meeting, a municipal council meeting in Moscow, and was uh, arrested for it and uh, thrown in jail for seven years. Um, it is... Uh, um, two poets, um, Artyom Kamardin and Yegor Shtova, who were sentenced to seven and five and a half years, respectively, uh, for reading anti-war poetry um, at an anti-war mobilization event in Moscow. Um, they have been missing for two weeks now. They are on their transfer from the pretrial detention center to the place where they will be serving their atrocious sentences. And this is a very, very dangerous period in the life of a political prisoner in Russia because uh, under Russian law, the authorities are not required to provide information about a prisoner's whereabouts to either his lawyers or his family members. And um, they these transfers can last for months. So um, anything can happen to these people while they are in, like forcefully disappeared in this way. And I believe it is extremely important to talk about these people, to raise the issue and to, to, to talk about these specific people who are missing right now. I know the fear that the uh, families of Artyom Komardin and Yegor Shtovba must be feeling right now because I lived through that fear in September when Vladimir was missing for um, a few weeks during transfer. There are hundreds of people whose names I would be proud to call out and uh, my heart is aching for them and I believe that everything should be done to make sure that these people find their freedom and become part of that democratic Russia that we all want to see. Thank you. That's very, uh, very profound and very important message. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for your work and for joining the show. We're thinking of all the lawyers in Russia who are working on these difficult and important cases. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was co-hosted and produced by me, Paras Shah and Viola Ganger, with help from Clara Apt. Our theme song is The Parade by Hey Pluto. Special thanks to Jasmine Cameron, Legal Advisor for Europe and Eurasia at the American Bar Association's Justice Defenders Program. And to our guests, Evgenia Karamurza and Vadim Pokorov. You can read all of Just Security's coverage of Russia and the rule of law, including Vadim's analysis, on our website. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.